Part one of this series covered much of the background of the book of Job, some matters of translation, and the first two chapters, which cover much of the story of the book as it is commonly told. From here, we'll proceed through the parts of the story that have remained largely untold. Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. Here's a quick recap of what we learned in part one. The story typically told from the book of Job is that of a wealthy man who is cursed by God to test his faith, but through many trials and great suffering, he refuses to cease in his devotion. This does indeed seem to be the way that the book starts, but right away we find clues that something else is going on in the text, especially when we take a close look at the original Hebrew. Translations state that God wanted to know whether Job would end up cursing God to their face, but the Hebrew verb used in this case is to bless, or possibly to kneel to. That's just the beginning of how different this book is from how it is often described. In just a few minutes, we'll be doing a deep dive into this text and trying to figure out what's really going on. Before we get to this week's segments in the essay, let me tell you how you can support my work, and that's really important because I put a lot of time and resources into this, and your support makes a big difference in the time I can take to work on the blog and the podcast, and to make this the entertaining and informative thing I want it to be. If you go to my blog page, satanistreadsthebible.com, you'll find a link to my Patreon page, and that's hands down the best way to support my work and get access to some additional content in the process. I've also got Amazon links in the essays to the books I use to research my work, and if you click through and buy those, that puts money in my pocket that I can put back into the show. If you like, follow, subscribe, and tell your friends, that all helps me out a great deal as well. I had the idea of doing a segment on religious news, but since this is going to be a longer read, I've decided to forgo that until next week. But I do want to mention some personal news that relates to the show in an entirely insignificant and unimportant way. I've started studying Latin. I'm not aiming to be able to speak or even just read Latin fluently, but I wanted to familiarize myself with the grammar so that I could deconstruct particular sentences or phrases or construct my own. I really love highly inflected languages, and Latin is obviously a classic in that regard. So sorry. I can always look up the vocabulary, but a great deal of meaning in Latin is based on how the words are inflected, and for that, one needs grammar. As you may know, I sign off each episode of the show with Ave Satanas, Latin for Hail Satan, using the ecclesiastical pronunciation, which is the more modern pronunciation used in liturgy. That seemed fitting given the subject matter and given that Satanas is not a Latin word at all, but a loan word from Hebrew which would only have appeared in Latin during the ecclesiastical period. But the source I'm using to learn Latin uses classical pronunciation, which is a bit different, and it's getting to the point where ecclesiastical pronunciation is starting to sound weird to me. I may end up going back on this, but I'm going to switch my sign-off to the classical pronunciation, which you'll hear at the end of the show. And for music this week, abyssal, a beacon in the husk. Abyssal lives in the same dense and dissonant world as bands like Portal and Mitochondrion, which means that this is absolutely terrifying music. But where Portal is just pure eldritch density, Abyssal has a more stable architecture that sometimes even reminds me of traditional heavy metal. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't make this music safe or easy to digest, but it does make it more fun and evil in perhaps a more pointed way than the abstract madness you'd get from a Portal album. This music is still absolutely off-the-wall crazy, and it's also some of the best music of the year. Hit them up on Bandcamp and grab yourself a download, or look for it on your streaming platform of choice. 
Book of the week. I'm trying to spend more time reading books I already have rather than buying new ones, but that means I have less content for this segment. So this week I'm going to talk about my all-time favorite book, Anathem by Neil Stevenson. This is a book that I want to say very little about because there's so much joy to be had in reading it and discovering for yourself how its world and language work. So I'm going to try to say as little about the contents, plot, and themes of the book as possible while still giving it a description sufficient to warrant your purchasing and reading it. If you're someone who loves language, science fiction, ideas, or any combination of those three things, this is your new favorite book. About one out of every 20 of the words that Stevenson uses in the book is a neologism, but he's constructed them so well that they don't seem the least bit out of place and their meaning is often entirely clear before you even come across a formal definition. But all the heady stuff aside, this is a book with lovable, endearing characters and an engaging story. The learning curve is steep and it'll take you a good 100 pages to get your wits about you, but once you do, you'll be locked in until the end. Moving on to this episode's main feature, the Book of Job, Part 2. What's notable here, at the transition point between the first two chapters and those that follow, is that there is a profound stylistic shift. The first two chapters of Job are written in dry, dull prose, returning to the opening lines. There once was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, consider the selection from chapter 5, written in a stunning, eloquent, and florid style of poetry, in which Eliphaz, a friend of Job, praises the beneficence of God. How happy is the one whom God reproves! Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He strikes, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no harm shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes." You shall come to your grave in ripe old age as a shock of grain comes up to the threshing floor in its season. That's chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. I'd like to do some stylometric analysis of the text to confirm this, but I believe that the book of Job was written by multiple authors, probably at least three. Overall, the text reads as though subsequent people had taken it in whatever form they had found it in, and added onto it or otherwise modified it. And this will be seen more as we proceed through the text. One might ask the question at this point, was it at all common in the ancient world that texts would be acquired, altered, and then redistributed? After all, if this was an isolated example, then it would want for an explanation of why such would only happen once. But in fact, there are works that are in the canonical Bible that are clearly forgeries. What else would one expect in a time before anyone could do much to verify authorship? If a document from the ancient world was the unedited work of a single author, that would want for an explanation of how it survived that long in its original form before the printing press, at the least. Returning to the narrative, what happens here first is that three friends of Job arrive, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. 
They are distraught to see their good friend in such bad shape. They sit with him for seven days, none of them speaking. After this, Job is the first to speak. Far from the meek resignation he displayed the week prior, here we find Job full of rage and contempt, which he describes at length in some of the most beautiful poetry of the ancient world. While not explicitly cursing God, he curses the life that God has given him and the suffering that God has visited upon him and demands to know the reason for it. Whether or not he can truly be said to curse God can be debated, but the story told of Job that he remained perfectly faithful throughout his ordeal is manifestly false. Quoting here, Why is light given to one in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it does not come, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to one who cannot see the way, whom God has fenced in? For my sighing comes like my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Truly the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. That's chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. And then come three segments presented by each of the three friends as to the reasons for Job's suffering. Eliphaz is first, saying that Job must not have been blameless in his life, and that God is disciplining him, making him better. The section from Eliphaz that I quoted above by way of demonstrating the stylistic shift in the text shows Eliphaz describing how Job will be improved by these trials. And how much does this sound like an abusive relationship? He wounds, but he binds up. He strikes, but his hands heal. Job offers an impassioned counterargument that whatever reward cannot possibly be worth what has been done to him. All he yearns for now is for God to strike him dead. And further, Job says, if he has sinned at all, his punishment is fantastically disproportionate. Bildad says, it doesn't matter whether you've erred or not, God knows better, so you had best simply repent. If you do, you will get back everything you have lost and more. If you don't, that is God's justice for having done wrong in their eyes, even if we can't understand it. Job's answer to this is that God's anger must be greater than God's mercy, quoting, God will not turn back his anger. The helpers of Rahab bowed beneath him. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am innocent, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I do not believe that he would listen to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, he is the strong one. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I do not know myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked he covers the eye of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Chapter 9, verses 13 through 24. So that mentions something called Rahab. That's in Jewish folklore, a mythical sea monster. I'm not entirely certain about what that verse means. Uh, there's also the line, if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? The Hebrew here indicates that this means something along the lines of who can possibly meet his standards. And overall, 
I think what this is saying is, what can Job do as a mortal against such infinite rage? And if it couldn't have been said before, it can be certainly said now, Job curses God, saying, Therefore I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. This leaves both Eliphaz's and Bildad's arguments rejected. Zophar remains and reiterates much of what his companions have said. Job must have somehow erred, even if in some way beyond human ken and noble only to God, and that he must, quoting, direct his heart rightly so that God might redeem him. Zophar seems to be coming from a place of deep mystical knowledge, but Job rebukes him for this, saying, I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Chapter 12, verse 3. In other words, Job claims his own mystical understanding in which his prognosis is less than favorable. Now, Job comes to cursing God directly. If he tears down, no one can rebuild. If he shuts someone in, no one can open up. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away and makes fools of judges. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He uncovers the deeps out of the darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great, then destroys them. That's selections from uh, chapter 12, verses 14 through 23. Job's understanding has arisen out of his suffering. God is capricious and arbitrary, acting as they will. If Job has been blameless and upright his entire life and God still torments him to this degree, can he expect that repentance will save him? Job then proceeds to brutally rebuke his three friends for the bad advice they have given him. As for you, you whitewash with lies. All of you are worthless physicians. If you would only keep silent, that would be your wisdom. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. Job then prays to God, asking first that his torments cease, and then that God explain to him why they have done this. There is then a second round of arguments, again presented separately by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, with Job responding to each. Each argument is a variation on the theme of Job having done wrong but not knowing it and needing to repent, but Job counters these arguments and affirms his innocence at every turn. After a third round of arguments, absent any offering by Zophar this time, Job offers a lengthy summation of his position as well as a poem concerning wisdom, which concludes with God saying to humankind, truly, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, uh, which is chapter 28, verse 28. Finally, at the 40th and last verse of the 31st chapter, the text states, the words of Job are ended. And here things take a bizarre turn. A fifth character arrives introduced by a short section in prose, which I'll quote here. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Barachel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He was angry also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. But when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he became angry. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. I believe we have here our third author. Elihu's identification is oddly specific, especially given that no other character in the book is specified to that degree, and the text is quite aggrandizing of his character. 
My suspicion here is that this section was written by Elihu himself and that he wrote himself into the story to offer his own position, that being that Job's suffering is essentially irrelevant and that God should be praised regardless for their infinite goodness and majesty. At last, God arrives in the form of a whirlwind, a powerful force of nature, to set the record straight, to explain to the five, and to all of us, their reasoning and motivation. I believe that this is the second author again, and that Elihu's section was inserted between this section and the earlier arguments of the three friends. Nothing further is mentioned of him. God speaks first to Job's four counselors. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Chapter 38 verses 2 to 3. I find this an entirely hilarious rebuke. And what are God's questions to the four? Quoting, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. God goes on like this for quite some time and then directs a similar speech at Job. God describes their creation of two great and terrible beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan, beings of incredible power. If God can create beings of such incredible power, then God's own power must be even greater. Job responds, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. Job is quoting God here, and then responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Chapter 42, verses 2-6. through six. Despise myself does not seem to be a very apt translation. I retract my words seems better, and several translations of the Bible use something closer to that. What Job is saying here is that God's power being so immense, Job, whatever injustice he feels has been done to him, has no recourse but to kneel in the ashes of his former life and worship. And here at last, God has received the acknowledgement that they were seeking, and they restore Job's wealth giving him even twice as much as he had before. What's more, there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring, chapter 42, verse 11. And this is that word ra again, which implicitly declares that God is not perfectly good, but may choose to do evil. After all of this, after all of the back and forth about the nature of God and justice, it comes down to power. Does Job offer the proper sacrifices to God? God doesn't care. Does Job offer deference to God in matters of fate? God doesn't care. Is Job innocent of wrongdoing? God doesn't care. Does Job acknowledge God's infinite power and fear them for it? On that matter, it is clear that God cares a great deal. 
In order to affect this acknowledgement, God had everything that Job cared about taken away from him and had him tormented until he acknowledges that God can do what they want and can even go so far as to man that Job worship them for it. For the God of the book of Job, there are no reasons of justice or good, only will and power. This is actually consistent with another chapter in the Old Testament that describes God as working evil in the world, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. With woe translated from that same Hebrew word, ra. Taken as a whole, Isaiah 45, just as do the final chapters of Job, describes God as being justified by their great power rather than by their goodness or justice or by any other measure. This story neatly rebukes the common notion that good and justice are the chief values of the Judeo-Christian God. In fact, if we are to take Christians at their word that the Old Testament was divinely inspired, we have a God who is petty, capricious, arbitrary, and amoral, who should be worshipped only out of fear of their immense power. Though Satan the Accuser is hardly blameless in this story, he has at least provoked humans into thoughtful philosophical discussion and debate, something for which God rebukes all those involved. I know that many people don't read the Bible at all, and many others only read selected quotes from it, absent the historical and textual context, which is necessary for any proper interpretation of such a complex text. But I also know that there are many devout Christians who do indeed read the Bible devoutly and study its anthropology. Why, then, does it seem like I'm the first person to discover all this? The oddities of the translation are always simply rationalized away. I couldn't find a single source indicating that the translation of Barak might not be euphemistic, and again, Barak is the word that is used uh, in that I referenced in the first part uh, that means to bless, which is translated as to curse. I couldn't find a single source indicating that the translation of that word might not be euphemistic and might indicate another viable interpretation of the text, nor anything explaining why such an interpretation would be impracticable beyond a casual dismissal. And beyond that, there are 39 chapters of the text that refute what is believed about it based on the other three. As often happens when I delve into the Bible in this way, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I feel like I'm going to end up papering my room with newspaper articles with yarn strung between them. And this is what I was talking about in the discussion segment to part one. I don't think there's a grand conspiracy at work here. But the traditional interpretation of Job does indeed benefit people. And if you've got a good story that people love, that keeps people religious in the way you want them to be religious and keeps them docile, why change things up? Especially given that, in the actual story, Job spends a great deal of time doubting and questioning God. Maybe that's not what you want your congregation doing, because if they take that far enough, they might stop showing up to services and stop putting cash on the collection plate. I don't have an answer to the question of why more people don't know this story for what it is. I have to wonder if there are people out there who read through the entire book, but who are reading their prior beliefs about it into the text the entire time. Confirmation bias, right? We are wired to ignore that which contradicts our existing beliefs. I wish I had a better explanation, and maybe one day I will, but for the time being I'm left reading this beautiful text and wondering why it isn't more widely understood for what it is. Up next, this is still in the works, but I'm looking at another story on Nietzsche, and this one is about his concepts regarding the Dionysian and the Apollonian. 
That's one of Nietzsche's earliest ideas, one that he expressed, however awkwardly, in his first book, The Birth of Tragedy, but which he came back to later in life with some revisions. Like I said, this one's still coming together and I might end up going with something else entirely, but at the moment, that's what I've got and that's what I'm going with. So last segment is poetry, and this is a short one, but it was inspired to some degree by this story. The body of God is disciplined by the mouth of God. The ears of God are circumscribed by the mind of God. The hand of God is bereft of the truth of God. I am lying in your arms and unholy. Never before have I understood. And now I repent in dust and ashes. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Always set the news.